Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Crypto Hipster Podcast. This is your host, Jamil Hassan, the Crypto Hipster, where I bring you amazing podcasts from amazing guests around around the world and crypto and blockchain artists, entrepreneurs, founders, executives, musicians, you name it. Um, I'm talking to him. And today I have an amazing guest. Uh, he is in uh, the CET time zone. He'll tell us all about it, but um, he is uh, the CEO of the People's SCE. His name is Bernard Blaha. Uh, Bernard, welcome. Hello, Jamil. Thank you for having me. Very welcome. I'm looking forward to this interview, and and uh, the, I'll kick things off and ask you first of all, um, what is your background, and is it a logical background for what you're doing now? It kind of is a logical background, yes. So actually, from an educational perspective, I've always been on the intersection between technology. So I do actually have a, a, a bachelor in computer science and engineering. And then I added a master in economics. And then I also started a financial degree, the CFA for those who know it, uh, which I never finished due to a lack of time. And so essentially, when I'm talking blockchain, I'm really at the intersection where these three areas come together essentially so yes it's a very very logical uh, step to go there and from a more professional point of view yes it's also quite logical so to make this brief in 2012 i started my first company which was an it company back then then i visited some other industries including but not exclusively um uh, the, the medical it uh, industry then I switched over to import-export. Then I went into the iGaming industry. And from there, I subsequently founded or started founding companies in the area of cryptocurrencies and blockchain. And this is where I am now. So looking at it, in hindsight, it's actually quite logical. Great. So, um, you know, I want to ask you about this. And this is not on the bingo card of questions. But... Um, I want to see your experience with your. You said you have three areas, right? And I have the similar. My minor technology, finance, and operations. How do you find the strength of those three, like being a triangle, and helping you to be to create these companies and these ideas? How ben how beneficial has has that been to you? Quite a bit, to be honest. So looking at it, of course, creating companies, building them, and scaling them. That's mostly to do with economics and an understanding of how businesses work, right? However, all of these companies do include some kind of product or service, depending on the company. And it's such a big advantage to actually be able to understand how these products work, to understand the technicalities behind it, to actually be able to read the code that these products, and I'm mostly in the digital world, are made from that is quite an advantage and on the other hand of course when it comes to developing the product and you don't just have to technically understanding but also have from your past experience and from your skill set the insight into how these products will work on the market how users will interact with them not just on a microeconomic but also on a macroeconomic scale that is where it all comes together for me right uh, so i'm right where i want to be with that and i'm always asked if it makes sense to do what i've done academically and professionally to get to where I am right now. And my answer always is yes, clearly it does. Because especially in a world that is developing in a pace as the current world is globally, 
it just makes sense to have a broader understanding and to not just understand your specific area, but look a bit around you and what is going on and fully understand that. And yeah, that, that is what is helping me a lot right now. Yeah, I agree. Um, so awesome. So let's see, let's talk about the people's SCE. What is that? What is it all about? And what, why is it uniquely great? The people's SCE fortunately is the easiest business to pitch that I have ever had, especially when people and nowadays everybody does know about cryptocurrency and the pitch is you want to pay with cryptocurrency. We make it happen. That's it. That's all we do. And of course, there's a lot more detail, and I assume we will talk a bit about that as well later on. But essentially, we are what, what I always call a DAO, a Decentralized Autonomous Organization 2.0. So we are fully decentralized. We are under the ownership of essentially the users that use our product. And at the same time, what we are striving for is to actually make the world of cryptocurrencies accept accessible to the broad audience, to the mainstream, essentially, because right now, it is not, frankly speaking. All right, so I have to ask now about this because um, I want to find out. Dow, you said Dow 2.0, and um, I'm in the U.S. and like Dow 1.0 has been a novel idea, but it hasn't really been a successful Dow 1.0. So, what's the difference between Dow 1.0 and Dow 2.0? And what makes you guys successful or what's been the success, um, you know, with the, with the new DAO? Well, frankly, DAO 2.0 is, is a term that we coined. Uh, but essentially what we did is we looked into what is the actual philosophy behind the blockchain and cryptocurrencies. And we were not the inventors of digital autonomous organizations whatsoever, but they had some problem. And as you know, the, most of them are not really successful in mainstream terms. And there are a couple of reasons for that. And one of the reasons is essentially a DAO is not a legal entity as such, right? It does exist on a blockchain, it does its thing, but you cannot ever really get uh, resources from outside of the blockchain into a DAO. Also in terms of regulations, it's, I mean, some of them do something that is clearly legal, but most of the DAOs, they are in kind of a gray area. And that is not a bad thing as such, but it's, it, it just means that regulators are a bit behind on that aspect. And so what we did is we, we founded something that is a very European Union thing, actually. It's called an SCE, which stands for a European Cooperative Society, meaning uh, it has the possibility to have a lot of people making the decisions in the company, uh, influencing the company and also benefiting from whatever the company achieves. And that SCE essentially is what we founded or, or based the foundations of, of the People's SCE or the DAO 2.0 as we call it on. And what it allows us to do is we have right now hundreds of so-called members and each of those members has essentially the equivalent of one share of the company. Not more, not less. It's exactly one share. And that's another advantage over DAO 1.0s or traditional DAOs. We don't have whales like one person or one big company that can influence the direction that the company is going towards because everybody has exactly the same voting rights. We always claim uh, one, one uh, membership, one vote or one member, one vote. Uh, so it's really uh, an, 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 a thing where everybody is equal. And that's one of our 
basis or our foundations that we are building on. And we also are a legal entity. So as I said, that is something that is very specific to the European Union. We can do that here. It's quite new. I don't know of a lot of uh, SCEs that exist in the first place. But what it means is we are a legal entity. We can have contracts. We can even have licenses. We can be regulated. But we can do all of that while still being very decentralized, while still giving a lot of voting power to the members, while still having a lot of decisions made by the members. And that is why we refer to it as the DAO 2.0. I love it. Um, the one one share, one vote is a lot different here in the in TradFi in the US where the hedge funds own all the companies. <laughs> you know, so. Um, is, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, what was uh, so? I want to I want to ask a little bit of, um, about another organization too. So you you were co-founder of the Digital Asset Association in Austria. Um, what are some of the core initiatives that you are that that organization and you are working on now there? Well, maybe a bit of background regarding the Digital Asset Association Austria. Uh, we founded it in I think it was 2018. And the reason we founded it is was after the 2017 ICO hype, uh, we had a, a regulatory landscape that pretty much looked like a desert, right? Nobody knew what to do with that whole new blockchain thingy. And so we figured, okay, we do have that expertise in Austria. And I am originally Austrian, although I do live in Luxembourg now. We do have the expertise in Austria. We have a lot of people that know what they're talking about. So let's let's found an association that can essentially consult not only companies, but also regulators and what on what that new thing, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and so on is. And so we've been doing that ever since. And I mean, the topics have changed quite a bit, uh, but ultimately we are still doing the same thing. And right now, a lot of the things that we are consulting on and that we are putting or giving giving input on towards companies and regulators alike is uh, taxes, because taxes are still very much an unresolved topic across many states and also, of course, regulations. So in the European Union, something that was supposed to be voted on recently but still hasn't for bureaucracy reasons is the so-called MICA or Markets and Crypto Association. Uh, markets in crypto assets and uh, that is something that has been in the making for quite a while and I'm glad to say that not only uh, with the Digital Asset Association Austria but also a lot of the members of that association have been giving a lot of valuable input on that that you can now also find in the current drafts of the Mika and that is essentially what we're doing and the focus right now as I said is taxes and regulation. Taxes are going to be tough this year um because of the Certainly. rulings of 2022 right where like for example like celsius the judge in the U in new york said that if you send your cryptos over there then that becomes their property so how do you handle taxes for that um i'm not going to ask you to get into the technicality of the taxes yet but i'm just saying it's going to be hard <laughs> so it is certainly um, going to be hard yeah i mean the, the whole thing is is so new and doesn't really fit into what we know from traditional markets and traditional assets so it, it's kind of a bit chugging around with new ideas and having a frameworks text-wise that we currently have. And somehow we have to make that fit together. We'll see how that works out in the future. Interesting. So let's talk about let's let's talk about the people's currency, right? So when you when people talk about the people's currency, the two coins that come to my mind, and there there are others, um, are Litecoin and um and Shiba Inu, right? 
or maybe Dogecoin too, right? So how is what you're working on an improvement upon those existing crypto cryptos that are favorable to retail investors? Well, first of all, uh, I think we have a very different focus than these currencies. I mean, Litecoin is amazing. I've been I've been following Litecoin for quite a while. Uh, I don't think it has it has an impact on the market that it had in the past anymore. Uh, but still, it's a it's a great project to have on the market. And the basic use case of Litecoin is the cheap and quick transfer of values, right? And that is something that we also do. However, what Litecoin and pretty much any of the other currencies, and that is very much including meme coins like Shiba Inu or Dogecoin, is uh, they are not really used in the mainstream, right? So when you look at pretty much any cryptocurrency, I love sending cryptocurrencies around. It's so easy, it's so quick, and there's, there's so little hurdles to get into it. However, you cannot really do that. I cannot go to the grocery store around the corner and pay with cryptocurrencies. There's a couple of reasons for that. And that the basic argument that you will always hear, and I don't necessarily agree with that, is it's expensive, it's slow. That's not true anymore, right? Neither for Bitcoin nor for Ethereum nor for uh, Litecoin or meme coins. So that is that is not the case. However, what is the case is the user experience is not easy. So, for example, say I would like to let's stick to Dogecoin. Let's say I would like to accept Dogecoin in my business. So first of all, I have to uh, find a wallet that I can use to accept Dogecoin. Then I have to uh, make sure that I can get that into my um, point of sale system. Then I have to make sure that all of my employees can use it. And even if they can use it, then I have to make sure that they're not running off with that, right? Because if you have a wallet where users can send the funds and then the employee has that wallet, and then at the end of the day, they just decide to go home with it, then what are you gonna do? You can't do nothing about it. And so all that permissioning, all of that accounting, all of the point of sale integration and the entire user experience, that is what we are focusing on with e-credits, the people's currency. And we have some, some marketing topics in there. For example, we have a map that clearly shows you where you can go. Uh, we, of course, do have the, the uh, users in our app where stores can directly tell them, hey, I'm here. I do accept cryptocurrencies, e-credits, but not, not just, we're not exclusively e-credits. We also uh, allow for other cryptocurrencies like Ethereum to be accepted. And the whole user experience from marketing to actually handling that transaction in the store, to explaining to the users how it works, to managing the employees, that is what we are building. So actually a mainstream use case for e-credits, our own cryptocurrency, but beyond that also other cryptocurrencies. That sounds good. User experience is something that that uh, needs help. <laughs> so. Um... Yeah, I do have actually a good friend of mine who always says uh, he's a bit older than I am and he was there when the internet grew to what it is now. And he said he's, he feels like we are right now with blockchain and cryptocurrencies where we were with the internet in the early 90s. So it is there, it does work well, but people just don't know how to use it and they don't even have an imagination of where it can go and what use cases it can bring to them, right? And I do very much agree with that actually. He brought me back there to 1996 when I was in graduate school and um, I would dial up to get onto the school's internet and it would take me an hour to do dial up. So yeah, it's come a long way. Absolutely, um, it has, yes. So let's talk about financial inclusivity, right? Um, the one for one is definitely financial inclusivity. Why is financial inclusivity important and why 
is old world, I call it old world finance, you might call it Wall Street. Why are they running scared from it instead of embracing it? Uh, may, maybe if you allow, I can answer that with, with kind of a story that happened just a couple of days ago. So as I mentioned before, I do live in Luxembourg, which is very much a first world country. It has a lot of big banks here, a lot of funds here. And of course, I do have a bank account in Luxembourg. And just recently, I sent some euro funds, like a SEPA transaction to Kraken, which is a very big exchange and everybody knows about it. Everybody knows they're regulated, right? And day later, my bank called me and told me, hey, you, you can't do that. You cannot send funds to Kraken. And I asked them why. And they told me, because Kraken is a crypto provider. That was the wording they used. And actually, at this point, I'm just going to call them out. That was ING Luxembourg that did that. And uh, I, I asked him, why can I not send my funds, my money to a crypto provider, which, by the way, is a legal term that, to my knowledge, does not even exist. It's not really a defined term. They said, well, we have decided as a bank collectively with all other banks in Luxembourg that we don't want to allow that. Or no, actually, they said that we don't want to allow cryptocurrency transactions. And I told them, OK, that's all well and nice, but I did not do a cryptocurrency transaction. In fact, what I did is I sent euros to Kraken and they are still there as euros. So I never, these funds never touched crypto. So what's the problem here? And they said, no, it's a crypto provider. And so I asked them, okay, so what makes you, do, or what's your definition of a crypto provider? And they wouldn't tell me. So I asked them if they could send me an exhaustive list of crypto providers, because if they don't have definitions for it, then I should at least know what institutions I'm not supposed to interact with, right? And they wouldn't do that either. So I asked them, okay, what's the problem now? Because I know for a fact that Revolut and N26, so the challenger banks, are essentially allowing people to interact with cryptocurrencies. And not just that, I can actually buy cryptocurrencies on their platform and I can sell them again. So by what you're telling me, you would actually have to prevent me from sending funds there. However, I'm pretty sure that you're not just going to prevent me from sending funds to these big banks. So what's the problem here? And they wouldn't tell me. They wouldn't give me any kind of arguments or reasoning or whatever. And uh, I mean, that on, on the one hand, that, that just confirms your question there. They're running away from it. They're scared of it. On the other hand, it also shows the big problem with traditional finance, right? Because they can decide what I can do with the money that I own, that I work for, hard for. And that is, uh, that is one part of financial inclusivity, right? If I earn my money, if I have my assets, then I should be able to decide what is happening with them. And that, and that has to be noted, is in a first world country with a very solid bank system. And now let's consider the same situation in a country that has, let's say, a, a less developed banking system, a less developed financial system, or maybe not just a less developed financial system, but also registers where corruption is quite, quite uh, present. And then people suddenly don't are not just prevented from using their assets in the way that they want to use it, they are actually not allowed to access them at all anymore. It's being stolen from them. Maybe you have a land reg register in another country and somebody comes to your door in the morning and says, hey, this is my house now. And you tell them, no, that's in the land register. And maybe they just paid somebody off at the land reg register and suddenly it's not your apartment anymore and things like that. So it's not just financial inclusion that we're solving here. It's general trust that we're bringing here. It's, it's, it's like, uh, making sure that things work the way they are supposed to work, like ruling out corruption, allowing people to actually control their assets, control their funds. And 
yeah, that is not, not just what we as a company are working on, but what the entire industry is working on. And my, my example here is just one that happened like two or three days ago. It's probably the smallest example of the many that you have out there. And this is why financial inclusivity is important. And on the other hand, just the outlook that this might happen, that this control is taken away from the traditional finance system and traditional banking system, this is why they're running scared, scared from it instead of embracing it, in my opinion. You said something interesting there. I, I, I didn't consider this about the land about the land registry. Take that too. So how? So there is still a global trust deficit, right? How do we like? And Bitcoin was supposed to reduce that trust deficit, but it looks like it's been, you know, uh, even greater trust deficit now. How do we how do we solution that trust deficit? How do we reduce it um, so that we can so that the crypto world can work in collaboration? With the with the old world, you know, and get them on board to do that. Actually, that has to be answered in two parts, right? Because the technical solution is right there. If I'm selling land to another person, I can incorporate that sale, that contract, if you will, in a transaction on on the Bitcoin blockchain or pretty much any other blockchain out there. And that's the technical solution, right? If it's on the blockchain, it's there. Uh, the other thing is, however, the, the acceptance. And right now, there are a couple of states that have made Bitcoin legal tender, but we are quite a bit away from having actual registers on the blockchain. Because first of all, again, the usability is just not there. The user experience is not good enough, which arguably is also the case for some land registers that I've seen. But still, uh, that's, that's how they like it. That's how they've been doing it for the past decade. So they want to continue doing it like that. So that's the first thing that we have to overcome. And uh, the second thing is there needs to be more understanding on what Bitcoin can actually do. Because the land register thing is, is an example that I've been bringing for a couple of years now. But still, people are always quite surprised when I bring it up because people don't consider that a thing that blockchain can solve for them. And so that is also a reason why I'm saying when we're working here at the People's SE on products like eCredits, we are focusing first and foremost on user experience. Because if people understand that they can now do their transactions trustlessly and not have anybody intervene with that, then we can go to the next step and tell them, hey, you've been doing that now, you like it, you love it actually. So let's take the next step now. Let's do some registers on there. Let's work together with, uh, with some governments. And that is something that is, by the way, already ongoing. So as an Austrian, for example, I've, I've recently read some articles about the, about, about the National Bank of Austria uh, experimenting with uh, wholesale CBDCs, so wholesale central bank digital currencies, where they're ex essentially settling their internal transactions with blockchain currencies, cryptocurrencies. And the reason they're doing this, the reason they're looking into it, it's just a research project for now. But the reason they're doing it is because, of course, it's much more efficient, it's cheaper, it's more secure even. And so the, the advantages of it, they're right there on the table. And now it's just a matter of making the user experience so great that they have to do it because it's just better. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. So, hmm. I don't get the whole CBDC thing. Like, I don't get like why everybody's so pumped up about CBDC. Like, if I'm buying a crypto, it's because I would I expect some appreciation in the future, and all of the all of the fiat currencies have been deflationary. 
So why am I buying a deflationary asset? And um, so I guess I'm missing the boat on that. Um, I don't understand or like, I don't get it. Oh, you're absolutely not missing the boat. So there's there's a big difference between a wholesale CBDC and a retail CBDC. A retail CBDC would be like a government issued USD or Euro. And I I totally agree. I, I don't really see a lot of use cases there, especially uh, the European Central Bank has been going crazy about this. They had ideas of like uh, making an inflationary digital currency and then overly inflating the physical currency so they can have expiry dates on digital currencies and whatnot. That is, yeah, I'm not going to use the word, but that is that is not a good idea. Um, wholesale CBDCs, however, is something that the end consumer would never touch. And uh, you you raised another point that I would like to focus on, and that is uh, buying cryptocurrencies because you expect them to appreciate in the future. Uh, that is that is a good thing on the one hand. On the other hand, I think uh, we should also uh, start start looking at the idea of not buying cryptocurrencies because they might appreciate, but buying cryptocurrency for, cryptocurrencies for two other reasons. The first one is they may not appreciate, but at least they do not depreciate, which is already a good thing in, in today's economy, right? And the second thing is uh, they just have a better user experience. And as I said in the beginning, I just prefer using a cryptocurrency over using my credit card because uh, it's it's quick. I know I have full control over it. I know that it's not getting blocked at a random time uh, and stuff like that. And I think these two things are what we should be focusing on. I mean, appreciation is, is all good and well, but appreciation is volatility, right? And volatility is detrimental to mainstream acceptance because look at it from the perspective of a merchant. As a merchant right now, we have to be, we have to be realistic here. As a merchant, you're not paying your taxes or your suppliers in cryptocurrency, right? You're going to pay them in a fiat currency. So imagine you're you're now uh, accepting cryptocurrencies and you're getting BTC, Dogecoin, whatever, it doesn't matter, e-credits. Um, and these are volatile and they appreciate on the one hand, but on the other hand, they will depreciate the same, right? It's all the same. And so imagine you're getting, I don't know, 100 uh, USD because you provided somebody a service or gave them a product and you're getting 100 USD. And at the end of the day, you go to the exchange and you get 95 USD out of it. Well, you've just lost money. And as a merchant, that's not a risk you can take. So rather than focusing on the appreciation of cryptocurrencies, we should focus on the stabilization of cryptocurrencies. And I'm not necessarily talking packed coins or stable coins here. I'm talking about uh, stability via volume. So the more volume you have, the more people are willing that that are willing to trade the currency around the price. I'm not talking about 100% stability, but they are willing to trade the currency around the price where it is currently at. The less volatility you have, and that is of course much more useful to merchants than a highly volatile appreciating cryptocurrency. And acceptance by merchants and usefulness to merchants is, to me, the equivalent of mainstream acceptance. That makes a lot of sense. I didn't think of it that way, but yes, I agree. Um, you know, so how do you, how do you decentralize, like that requires the financial infrastructure, right? How do you decentralize control the financial infrastructure, you know, across Europe and across the world then? Well, I mean, there's two approaches, right? The one approach is let's go to the regulator. Let's ask them to create some regulation. And if there's regulation, acceptance will come. 
I don't necessarily agree with that. I think you have to have the interest by the people first and then regulation will follow, right? Because that's one of the problems we're running into right now. There is regulation being made, being created, but it's not really there to cover the use cases. And we see that with cases uh, like FTX, uh, which is still possible with all the latest regulation. Uh, we see that with uh, the acceptance of cryptocurrencies being made harder than the acceptance of actual cash, which is stupid in my opinion. Uh, and so first we have to show the interest of the people. We have to get people to use it to an extent where the regulators just have to say, okay, we're, we're gonna have to follow what people are using it for, right? And from then on, it starts working. And re regarding the regarding, regarding making it global, making it work across the world, um, I mean, cryptocurrencies, blockchain is born global, right? Blockchain does not know borders. It doesn't matter where in the world you are, as long as you have internet access. And luckily, the internet is almost the same all across the world. I can send you some Bitcoin. I can send you some, some Dogecoin. I can send you some e-credits. That's just how it works. Blockchain is born global. So there's nothing that is containing it within artificial country borders. Even if regulators would try to do that, it wouldn't work. And so getting it to work across the world, that's not a problem. Getting it to work in the singular countries, that's what we have to work on. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Mm. You know, Bernard, I could, I, I could talk to you forever. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, but I, I want to thank you very much for your time today. It's been an amazing conversation. And I have one last question for you, and that is, how can people find out more information about you, about the people's SCE? How can they do that? That depends. If you want to find out about the People's SCE and how it works, how the whole DAO 2.0 thing plays out, then I recommend the website thescE.org. And if you'd rather find out about our product, eCredits, and what's going on there, then I recommend eCredits.com, where we have an academy where you can learn all the details about eCredits. And we do have uh, the white paper online and all the information you could ever need. And additionally, I would invite you to follow us on the social media channel of your choice. We are pretty much everywhere and we are releasing regular content in the form of AMAs, educational material, update videos, and so on and so forth. So I hope to see you there soon. Thank you very much for your time today.